0: Shhh Everyone be very very quiet I'm hunting for wabbit What Anyone got time for that? We got Roddy B on the tribe Salut Travel Tribe Travel Tribe au podcast de Welcome to the Travel Tribe Podcast What do former NBA greats Stefan Marbury, Tracy McGrady and Gilbert Renas have in common? The answer? They've all gone on to play basketball abroad during their careers. Today, I'm joined by former professional basketball player Rod Benson, who after playing in the NBA D-League, decided to give playing basketball in Korea a shot, pun fully intended. Since making that decision, he has gone on to become a three-time Korean Basketball League All-Star, including winning two KBL championships. We discuss his time in the D-League, his journey of becoming a basketball star in South Korea, developing his Mamba mentality, and other funny stories, such as almost getting in a fight with Suge Knight at a burrito stand at 3 a.m. Rod is also a man of the arts and is a writer and a painter. He was one of the first athletes to blog and give an insight into the life of a professional athlete before social media was a thing. He has written for Yahoo Sports, ESPN the Magazine, and Slam. Since retiring from professional basketball, he has gone on to other pursuits, including painting, podcasting, and improv comedy. Please welcome our guest today, Roddy Benson!
1: man that's a hell of an intro i feel like i was being introduced to the wwe or some shit god damn <laughs> how are you doing today i'm good man it's sunny out so that's positive right
2: yeah good i see you're in la with some of your artwork in the background
1: yeah she's at my house i mean if you don't put your own stuff up who's gonna do it for you and that's good you spending a lot of time painting right now since you got a lot of free time about the same as usual had a commission i finished a couple of days ago got another one coming in in the next couple of days so yeah staying busy
2: You have been a professional basketball player in Korea. So before we get to there, can you tell us a little bit about you and a little bit of background of your playing days?
1: So I was always kind of like a late bloomer and playing catch-up. And I think the D-League was just a part of that journey where I got hurt my senior year of college and I had to go there and play the catch-up game once again, so... It's very interesting. The G League has changed a lot. It yeah. was called the D League back then, which made it sound much worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> sound like you just like the A League, and then there was like a B and C that no one saw, and then you yeah. ended up in the, at the bottom <laughs> portion. And yet, you just didn't make any money. My year was the first year David Stern had the put in the dress code. Mm-hmm. So not only did I make nothing, I had to then buy all these clothes just to walk into the games, even for D Leaguers. And I basically had like one pair of shoes that I got. I don't even know where I got these shoes. I used to get clown form a lot, though. One polo and one pair of jeans that were like slimmer. And that like, because Austin had all these dress code rules anyway, a little racist in my opinion, uh-huh. they were like, I wore that same outfit to the games and to the bars. Okay. Every day.
2: <laughs> what was the transition from going to volleyball to basketball? Was there a certain inspiration or did someone encouraged you to do it? I kind of just
1: got challenged by this AAU coach one day who was like mad that I was during basketball season. JV obviously watches the varsity games, So I was like probably six, eight at the time in the stands watching the varsity team play. And this guy was like, what is wrong with you? Like, like, why aren't you doing basketball? And I was like, I don't know, man, like I'm good at volleyball. And he, so he basically forced me to come down and play on his AAU team. We were trash. I was trash. Just got dunked on a lot. We played against like Carmelo Anthony and all these guys who just like, it wow. just run us out of the gym. <laughs> and then one day I just like it just clicked, and I like all of a sudden wasn't bad anymore. I just like was instantly good. Like I went from like having like six points in one game and the next game I had like thirty seven. and then I just never had like a bad game again in high school. Like, <laughs> that's I don't funny. know what happened. It just yeah, it just takes some time sometimes. It just
2: clicked. That's great. And so what was the process like to playing college level then? Like I said,
1: I came into my senior year with like all of these scholarship offers mm-hmm. and my whole team was like baffled like because <laughs> I mean I think they like expected that I should have been playing on varsity but I think that a lot of them thought that I was just like too goofy to like be good at basketball or something so when I came up with all these offers then it like I immediately had to be taken seriously it's such a mm-hmm. unique situation because again all these kids have been playing together forever they'd won the San Diego championship the year before it was I think there was a maybe some thinking like they didn't need me to do this so but coaches started coming to recruit me and watch these things like coaches from like North Carolina came like Oregon like at the time these were two like elite programs and I think they were a little confused too like where'd you come from like what's your deal (laughs) we had a tournament at our high school it's one of the biggest tournaments uh, in the country for like regular high school and the first game I had like 30 and 20 or something, and. The very next day, because back then, like, it wasn't like now where there's so many, like, all your highlights are on YouTube and all that. It was, like, I went from being unknown and then a scouting service wrote what I did that night. And then the next day, we probably had, like, 150 calls to our landline, because this is 2001, to my mom's house. And she hung up on half the schools. Like, she just didn't like what school it was. At the time, Wake Forest and Kansas were two of the best teams. She didn't even... Give them 10 seconds. Who? (laughs) Wake Forest, my son ain't going to be surfing. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I I had to like really convince her because when you're bad at basketball, the first letters you get are from like Ivy League schools. Like they just reach out to anybody because they're like kind of bottom rung and they have like kind of national appeal. So the first letter I got was from Yale, like way before I had any offers. So my mom was like, oh, great, you're going to Yale. So when she gets calls from Kansas, she's like, what do you mean? My son's going to Yale. This is dumb. <laughs> this is dumb. I ended up going to Berkeley, but that Berkeley was it's a good compromise. Mm-hmm. We can all get what we want out of the situation. Yeah. And they were a good team at
2: the time. And then while you were at Berkeley, how was that process of you kind of just, you just joined? You just started playing basketball not too long ago, and all of a sudden, were you like a star on campus? Absolutely not.
0: No. Uh,
1: you know, every level you go up in basketball is like a huge step up and everything that you learn you have to like learn it double and my biggest weakness at the time wasn't necessarily like skill although that did need a ton of development it was like physical and mental toughness Mm -hmm. and so i would just get pushed around a lot i get made fun of a lot just for random stuff like for one i was just like super skinny i was just different like i was from cardiff by the sea california i remember like they put everyone's lockers they had uh their name tag and where they're from on it And it read like the movie Coach Carter or something with everybody else. is like David Paris, like like, Desto, California, like that's so-and-so like Oakland. And it's mine. It's like Rod Benson, like Cardiff by the sea. And people would read that and be like, what the fuck? What is Cardiff by the sea? Is that an actual place? You would be the one from Cardiff by the sea. So it was a long process for me to like get respect. Although another short story, but my very first day, very first day, Cause they have a program called summer bridge where athletes and certain students who they think like could use it come in early. So like in July mm-hmm. and the start date was July 5th. And so as a family, we drove up to the Bay area from San Diego to uh, stay with family that I had never met before. I don't even think I've seen this family since, but we stayed with these people and they had all these fireworks because it's 4th of July and I had a Roman candle and it was going off. And one of them blew up early, like right in front mm-hmm. and like right in front of my face. And so it like it severely like messed up my eye, which I already have very sensitive eyes. So my eye was bloodshot red, like in my like school ID photo for like the first year. You just have one red. I look like have pink eye. So my first day meeting all these other teammates and all these other students, they just see me with like pink eye. And they give us a study hall that first day and like all the athletes were there it's kind of bs it's kind of like oh this is what study hall is going to be like but i was trying to take it very seriously so i'm in there like actually trying to like read the books and get ahead and everyone else is just socializing like they're all just basically prospecting like who's going to sleep with who eventually like where am i going to hang out and i'm like in the book and like one of my teammates is like why are you so focused on this i'm like i'm just trying to like do well and he's like what happened to your eye i'm like oh it's like i messed it up yesterday but like I tell him this This is my teammate, someone who's supposed to be on my side. I tell him like, I actually have very sensitive eyes. If you talk about them too much, even they'll start watering. And like, I'm, and he's like, Oh, like this. And he just puts <laughs> his finger like right in front of my eye as I'm trying to read. And I'm like, trying to like, be like, like nice about it. Like, okay. Like, ha it was a funny joke. Just unmoving, unwavering for like <laughs> six to 10 minutes. And finally, like I like get super mad and I, like, my eyes are, like, full on. It looks like I'm crying tears because they're just watering from this, yeah. like, eye pressure. And I yell out. And it's, like, just it's just, like, perfect like a movie where, like, the whole room went silent as soon as I yelled out. I was, like, you don't give a fuck about my future. And everyone looks at me, like, what? What is wrong with this dude? It seems <laughs> like, that guy's not sleeping with anybody this year. <laughs> I think the whole school decided, and it was true. I wasn't sleeping with anybody. <laughs> I most certainly did not. <laughs> Don't talk about it. I get sensitive when we talk about this.
2: <laughs> so how was the rest of your college career? I remember reading somewhere that maybe you had an injury senior year. Is that
1: right? Yeah, I did have an injury my senior year. I mean, I think to understand how college really went, like I had to go from being that first guy to being like the guy that I am now. A big part of that was just like identity and like really being comfortable with myself. And it, it all started, and this is, I swear to God, this is true. One day I just woke up and I was like, first person I see in the locker room, I'm just going to slap the shit out of them. <laughs> Whoever it is, I don't care who it is, I'm just going to slap them. I don't take whatever consequences that bears, I'm just going to do it. So I, because uh, I'm still crying, Rod Benson, not it's like from Cardiff, not like Rod Benson, the athlete. So I, I walk into the locker room, there's like a punch code to get in. And I, uh, as soon as I open the door, there's like probably like seven or eight guys there. Most of them are on like the couch. It's like, cause the locker room is also kind of like a loungy area. So they're just talking on the couch. And one guy is closer to the door. His back is to me. His name is uh forehand Keller. And I literally just, we've never had any beef. We barely talked. We weren't really like friends. We weren't enemies. Just <laughs> tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around. He just he just And everybody like was just so stunned that no one said any, including him. No one said anything for like, Seconds on end, like, and <laughs> then he just proceeded to like beat the shit out of me. Like, I was, I didn't automatically just get good at fighting, but after that day, I became such a wild card to everybody that like I immediately just like got more respect, and it just like in high school, like all of a sudden I was just good, and basically that attitude carried through my whole college career, and so my junior year I ended up being very good leading the team in like points and rebounds and beating the shit uh, out of your teammates. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I used to, I got pretty wild. This was like my sophomore year. I had no recourse. I had talked to my mom and she was like, I was like, I, I think I would to transfer back to San Diego state. And she's like, no, you're not going to do that. So I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to be here, something has to change. It started with that slap, but it was other things like that started the ball rolling where like, again, I wasn't a starter. I wasn't a backup. I was like the last couple of guys on the team. I just started going way harder in practice, like, physically. Like, I would just, like, be ready to fight. And, again, when you're, like, when you don't know what to expect from somebody, it's scarier. Like, someone who's a good fighter, you still know that they exercise control and shit like that. Like, I didn't. I would take the ball and, like, punt it into the stands. Like, I would steal it from somebody, dunk on the other end, take the ball to the net and throw it at the coach and be like, like, give me fucking minutes. And, like, and honestly, it just worked. It was, like, an undoing of like all what society had taught me my first like 20 years of life and learning how to like actually be an athlete. Mm-hmm. It, when you see an athlete like, and you see them access that side, like you watch like LeBron or Kobe, like they are so far mentally from like a person. I don't care. The toughest, craziest person working at Kinko's will never understand that. We'll never understand that having been on both sides of it. The mm-hmm. things I had to do to become that are wild. That some people just grow up and are like ingrained with this mentality. That mama mentality is not just something you can't just like go have a hard workout session at the gym and be like, yeah, mama mentality. Like, you have no idea. No
2: idea. How do you develop that mama mentality? I mean, you're talking about going through a completely different level. Is this inspired by a coach? Is this just driven within you? Is there a switch that goes off? Older guys help
1: bringing that out of you? Or how do you develop that? For me, I had to do it myself. Basically. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, I mean, I I think this is like a big deal. Like I I said, my high school, where I went to school, they're the best in San Diego, but they never really went outside of San Diego. Part of that you can say is a talent, but I think like if you look at basketball worldwide, there are great non-African American players all over the world. Most of them aren't born in the U.S. I think there's something about being, like having no other options and being taught that way to like that. Either you get this done or you're never going to have success from like a very early age, then that shapes that mentality very early. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think a lot of people have ever been desperate enough to like maybe kill somebody over a game of basketball. And I don't mean that as like any sort of joke. So when you're not born with that desperation, like I wasn't raised in like such desperate circumstances, I had to learn it. And that is much harder to do. Like obviously as you're older, you have to unlearn so many things that you already learned. But the people I've seen who, like, really, really have it, they play every single game like it's life or death. Like that scene from Django where they're both, like, basically fighting for their lives. I'm serious, though. That's how people, like, approach this. Like, it actually is crazy. Like, you think you're talking to a normal person. People, I think, who have this, the the craziest are football players. You think you're just having, like, oh, I met, like... Marshawn Lynch, he's such a nice guy. No, he's not. He's <laughs> fucking nuts, just like every one of them. <laughs> you have to be. Yeah, it's just, it's just not some balanced ass person that you're talking to. So you were like, "Hey, I never had this. I'm just going to start popping my teammates in the face, and I'm going to develop this." <laughs> and being a complete, I literally just started being an asshole like by trial, mm-hmm. long enough until I be- actually became one, and not like really like, but where I can like turn it on and off. Like, I play, like, rec sports now, like, softball. And, like, it's funny because, like, it's very rarely does anything happen at softball that, like, gets me going. But a lot of these regular guys get super <laughs> hot right away. Like, game starts, oh, I'm hot. Like, no, you're not. You don't know what heat is. And then when I really access it, like, once a season, something will happen where I'll, like, I'll get that mentality. Yeah. And, like, people will look at me like, right, are you okay? Like, are you? is this the same person that was just, like, singing backstreet boys a second ago yes it is because <laughs> there's two parts you've never seen this other side you don't know anything about it do you have any like coaches or older players that kind of helped develop you or or as mentors no i mean I, my aau coach in high school was the one that first started telling me like he used to tell like this is when i was still bad but he'd be like oh you need to go back to your high school and take a ball and throw it at your teammates face and say like fuck this guy and like tell the coach, like slap the coach. He would say, and it, it all sounded so crazy. You know what I mean? Like, I'd be like, all right, this is, this is obviously dumb. Like I'm not good. I'm not going to do those things. And then it's funny that like, I know that he didn't mean it literally, but when I actually literally did those things, it, is when I became the player that I think he was like always expecting me to be. This is going to be interesting to talk about later. I'm just kind of, maybe I'm laughing so hard, because I'm envisioning this
2: in Korea, where this kind of (laughs) 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 seems ludicrous. Like, Mm -hmm. So I I love where we're going to head with this (laughs) in a little bit. Okay, so you're in college. You kind of realize you need this drive, and you need to be this basketball player and athlete mentality, different than the kind of maybe upbringing you had. So what happened after college was over and what were you thinking about doing next? Was basketball the only option or were you thinking of something else?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess basketball felt like the only option even though it really wasn't. Mm -hmm. But that time after college was like super weird. Like, I think if you're like a high draft pick or projected to do this and that, your life is probably different. For Mm -hmm. me, I like, I just really didn't have any aim. And I kind of just like, floated around. Like I I really didn't get much help from my like program in terms of like finding an agent, stuff like that. Again, there was just much less information about that stuff back then too. So I found out that someone had been trying to contact me through like a friend in Sacramento and they were like, Oh yeah, come out here and like train with us and sign with this agent and they'll put you up. And I was like, man, I'm really not doing anything. So that sounds great. But it was still like, even when I got out there, like I still didn't have any money. Like I didn't have a job. I was just training for basketball. Mm -hmm. So who ended up being my eventual agent my whole career, he like would give me like $400 here and there or something like that. But I mean, I was trying to like not really ask for a lot also because I didn't want to like have some huge debt. And also I don't think he wasn't the type of agent to just front you like a million dollars or something anyway. So I think after like when I finally signed a real contract, I ended up borrowing like $17,000 from him. But that's like basically all I lived on for like two years. So it was very, very rough. Like I can say that first year after college, I mean, I guess a lot of people probably go through this who like Mm -hmm. are going to regular jobs. But it was like such a like everything felt terrible for like a while, like (laughs) especially because like in college, like everything just comes to you. Like I didn't realize how easy stuff was at that point. Even just like getting a date, like in college, like, hey, just show up at this house. And there's going to be a bunch of people there. Yeah. Like I'm just in Sacramento now, like as an adult, like competing with like the Kings for like attention, <laughs> dressed in bad clothes with no money. Like <laughs> it's just, it's not, nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> so it took a while, man. It took a while until I really got settled in the D league. I mean, I not like, I made much money there, but once I got like my, probably my second season there, because I had just come from camp with the Nets. And when I was with the Nets, they were paying me like quite a bit. Like, I mean, it was only for a few weeks, but I made like a few thousand dollars where I was like living in New York. I thought I was like a boss. <laughs> After that, I really started like living closer to how I live now.
2: That's super interesting. I was reading a little bit while I was researching this, that those D-League players, they don't really give you much money. It seems like it's a really challenging time. I was hearing some of your stories of taking long bus rides to Salt Lake City and getting food poisoning at McDonald's and it doesn't seem like the glamorous semi-pro-life that we think of, I guess. I mean, do people think of semi-pro-life as glamorous? I don't know. I'm not I, sure. I, would, I thought it would have been so bad, you know, at least you get your own jersey and some, like, cool shoes and probably pay
1: for everything. And all you do is play basketball. But Yeah, I mean, on one level, of course it was cool. But on another level, like, we're still adults who have to, like, eat. So it's funny because it led to so many unique situations that can only happen in the D-League because there'd be one guy I played with Jay Williams and James White and we all know Jay Williams now as the analyst but back then he was like trying to rebuild his career but he'd still made millions with the Bulls James White was still making millions I had a couple of teammates who would played overseas and had made hundreds of thousands and then I was making like 400 dollars post tax like a week right. or every two weeks or whatever it was getting like all my food from Walmart like the cheapest food that they yeah. made and so Luckily, a lot of those guys, I mean, they understood the situation and like, if we'd go out, they'd like make sure everyone got to and from the place or like, you know, it'd get us like meals sometimes. It was very communal in that way. I mean, there'd be times I I'm giving some of my D league teammates, like a hundred dollars here or there when I had a little bit more and like mm-hmm. without that back then, at least like couldn't survive. So during this time period while you're playing in the D League, what was the goal? Was the
2: purpose the NBA or was it just to keep playing as long as you can play or eventually go overseas?
1: Well, I think once I got into the D League and I really like got playing time, I think the goal immediately became the NBA mm-hmm. because I saw what my numbers were looking like next to my contemporaries, especially my second year. Obviously that didn't really happen because of I also developed the writing career at the same time, but which like was a big detractor for a lot of people back then. But the skill and the numbers were just like, you're looking at NBA for sure. And luckily, I mean, it worked out where I ended up playing in Korea, but Korea was only taking like borderline NBA level guys at that time anyway. So it's kind of like the idea, like you shoot for the stars and land on the moon or whatever the saying is, it's kind of, that's basically what you, yeah, you have to look at it that way. What was in college that you started blogging? No, I started right after college. Okay, right after college.
2: And what inspired you to start blogging? Okay,
1: I consider this one of my like five like really good stories. All right. When I graduated, remember, I was now living in Sacramento, broke, training. And the good thing about training in Sacramento is that it's a relatively smaller place. There's a lot of direct connection to the Kings. So I ended up getting two workouts with the Kings. And the second one they had, there was a... I forget these guys' names. Some older guys, maybe in their like late seventies or eighties, who uh, I guess they were like the gurus. They like were big time responsible for those good King teams and like bringing in the talent. So they really loved what they saw from me. And I got a summer league invite to go play with the Kings, which to me was like the biggest thing that could have ever happened in my life at that time. Especially like I know this doesn't is small potatoes, but in the summer league you get like a hundred dollars a day. Yeah. So I was like, man, this will be a nice little like two weeks in Vegas with everything paid and a hundred dollars a day. Like I could not ask for more. Three days before we were supposed to meet, they hired Eric Musselman as the coach. I guess their previous coach had just been fired. So this is pretty standard practice, but they wanted everybody to come in for what they call like a mini camp before you go to the summer league. So a mini camp is usually like a day or two. In this case, it was one like three and a half hour practice at the facility in SAC. And yeah, there were tons of guys like I mean, having done summer league now many times, like it's rare to see them bring in like twenty, twenty-five guys for summer league. Like, but at that time I had no like frame of reference, so I was like, oh shit, like it's a lot of competition here. And so we did the three hour practice and afterwards Coach Musselman called me and like three other guys over, and he's like, You guys did really good today, but we're not gonna need you guys for Vegas. So and he like turned to someone else, like, help them out or whatever, and I was just like, Oh, word? Like <laughs> my whole <laughs> like next few weeks was like planned around this. Like I don't have anywhere to go. Like I don't like, I have nothing, literally nothing else except for this. And I could have probably gone with another team. If there had been any warning except for literally, cause they were going, we stayed in a hotel night before we did that and then go straight to the airport from practice. So everyone else, is like opening these big bags of like gear and like getting ready to like board the plane. Like, cause they didn't hand out any of the gear till afterwards, like another insider trick they do. So they, everyone's packing and they leave. And the four of us are still like figuring out where to go. The other three got it together quicker than me because they had more resources. I probably spent like four hours in the King's facility, like with nobody there, like fully empty, just like in the lobby, like, trying to figure out what I was going to do or who could mm-hmm. come get me or whatever. And my girlfriend at the time was going to come meet me in Vegas, but I couldn't reach her. Cause she's from Eugene, Oregon. She was at the Oregon country fair or whatever. So, which is like a very secluded thing where you're not like tied to cell phones and stuff. So couldn't reach her. Couldn't reach like any of the people, all the people that I was training with in SAC were all going to summer league or already in Vegas. So there's nothing there either. One of my friends from college texts me back and he's like, Oh, are you good? Like, you're not going to Summer League? I'm like, No. He's like, Well, come to San Francisco tonight. A friend of mine is in town from my hometown. He's also from Eugene. He's like, Oh, my friends from his hometown are coming into their band, they're performing. And he sends me a link to their song. And it, they had a song that was on Smallville, which was like one of my favorite shows at the time. So I was like, Oh, hell yeah, I'll go see them. Yeah. Is it free? And he's like, Yeah, don't worry. Like, they'll get you in and all that. So I have probably like, twenty one dollars to my name and i spend 16 of it on a train ticket from sacramento to san francisco and get there meet the band see them perform it Ends up turning into like a really fun night like i didn't really spend any money and we woke up in an apartment in san francisco like i i woke up like fuzzy like oh shit like where am i like because i my mind was still processing i'm supposed to be in vegas there's like open burrito wrappers everywhere and stuff and they're like <laughs> they're like starting to pack up and I'm like, Oh shit, where are y'all going? And I like, Oh, we got to go back to uh, Eugene because that's where we're from. I <laughs> we just came down here for the show and like, we're all still probably pretty drunk at this point. It's like 8am and they're like, one of them's like, man, isn't your girlfriend from Eugene? You should just come up with us. Like you don't have anywhere else to go, right? You should just stay with her for a few days. And I'm like, this is a great idea actually. Yes. Like I didn't have a way to get to Eugene before. Like I wouldn't have, or else I might've thought of that before. So just jump in the van so, like, I'm just in a van with these dudes driving to Eugene the next day when I should have been going to Summer League. And we are getting onto the Bay Bridge to exit San Francisco. And there's a big billboard that says, are you gay dot com? I remember it so vividly. I said to one of the other guys, I was like, what is this website supposed to tell you if you're gay? Or like, I don't understand this website. And he's like, yeah, I don't get it either. I was like, man, I could probably... Like if you can do that, anyone can make a website. I'll make a website. I'll call it like, are you or something? <laughs> <laughs> like, we were just laughing about it. We had like a back and forth about it. Yeah. Okay. So we're now like two hours into this drive. And I think like sobriety starting to settle in and I'm like, and it's hot. Like have you ever driven up from like up to five, it's like, it's not along the coast. It's in the middle of California where it's just like, there's nothing to see. So in reality, starting to set, I'm like, man, I should call my girlfriend and tell her that I'm coming. Like this is this feels like a bad idea. All of a sudden, I don't know these people, I don't and so I call her and there's no answer because she's at the country fair. Yeah. which I completely forgot about. I call her mom, who's also at the country fair. She's just, like laughing a lot. I don't know if either of them were doing drugs, but from my understanding, was that the, the country fair? Like people did a lot of shrooms and like really connected with nature and stuff. So I basically mm-hmm. just can't reach them. Yeah, And this drive is like an eight hour drive. So I reach Eugene. Like I'm just there. And I have nowhere to go. So my boy who like connected me with the band, he's still in San Francisco. So I hit him up. I'm like, yeah, I'm just out here. Like he's like, oh, I have some friends. You've met him before. They're gone for the summer because the school's out. They have an empty room. They said you could just crash there until she gets out. I just crashed on this person's back room, not leaving the house for like three days. <laughs> Meanwhile, watching Summer League on TV with the Kings, right? I'm just in this room in, in Eugene. <laughs> the third day comes and I get a call from my girlfriend and she's like, are you here? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, what the hell? I'm like, yeah, no, it's pretty crazy. She's like, I'll come pick you up. I'm like, yeah, please, please do. She comes and picks me up. We go to her, her parents' house. We watch A Beautiful Mind, which is like a fucking weird movie to watch in this moment because right afterwards I like go to like make a move and she's like, we're not still together. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Since when? She's like, uh, well, and I'm like, well, and then we just kind of like sit there in silence for like a little bit. And then she's like, just drives me back. (laughs) (laughs) I just got broken up with, I guess. And I'm sitting in this room and I'm just like crying for another three days. I have no, I, have nothing to, I, oh I got nothing God. going on. Finally, I'm like, because I, I told you I'd really refrain from asking my agent for anything, especially at that point. I had earned him no money. I'm like, man, I'm sucking Eugene. Can I just get like a plane flight to like San Diego? Like I'll just go stay with my mom for a little bit or whatever. I don't know where I tried to go, but he's like, yeah. And I was like, also, this is going to sound weird, but I saw this billboard about like a website. I kind of want to make one. Can I get like an extra thousand dollars for a MacBook? Like, I need something to distract myself. And he's like, Yeah, that's fine. So he sends me like $1,400 and I buy a MacBook on the way to the train station out of Eugene. And I start too much Rod Benson.com on that train ride with that MacBook. That's how it went. That is insane. I'm glad you told the
2: full story. Of that. That a great story. We watched A Beautiful Mind in Psychology when I was in high school. That movie will trip you up. The whole time, I'm like, are my friends real? Like, is real? Are you real? You know, I couldn't imagine that if you're like
1: dating somebody and they're like, why are you kissing me, man? Like, what are you doing? You're like, I thought we were yeah, The whole thing, like, I was like, am I actually, like, what is reality right now? Am I actually here? Is this actually happening? So, man, that is so cool. So that's the
2: start of Too Much Rod Benson, right? And where did that lead
1: you, the, the writing and the blogging from there? Man, at the time, nobody was really doing it. I didn't even like the word blog. I keep using the word website because that's how I thought about it. Blog kind of felt like it was a word reserved for, like, nerdy writers are like like early adopters of some th- fad that was gonna end soon or i don't know but it got momentum because me and my friends made a music video called uh boom got them though and because when we were in college they used to say all sorts of crazy words like i kind of jumped in late on this but they'd be like oh like we're going to the like uh, going to the market though, huh, boop, boop, got him. Boop, boom, though. and i really latched on the boom though part But I also like the idea of just putting all the words together for the name of a song. And so all the Berkeley people picked up on this. And it got, I mean, for 2006 standards, pretty high numbers, like 50,000 views. That brought a lot of like people to my site. So when I was writing these, I just was writing like dumb stories. Like they weren't like important. It was like, oh, these are funny MySpace messages I'm getting, like stuff that's like I could never do today. The climate has changed drastically, but I just make fun of the people who were like hollering at me on MySpace. I would write about like a bar that we went to, stuff like that. But since no other athletes were doing that, yeah, it became immediately very popular until I got, I was playing a game in Dallas and this guy named Mike Schmidt from draft express came up to me and he was like, Hey, do you want to do this for draft express? Like for money? And I was like, Money. <laughs> what? Yes. What? Yes, of course. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> and then I, I worked with them for a few months and then I, I ended up getting a call from Yahoo. Cause when I went to the net, that's when it blew up. Cause that's when like, once I got signed there, then all of a sudden you have the draft express blog that exists that people are liking too much. Rod Benson, which is like more of my like off the wall stuff. And I was writing about like living in New York and how like, scary it was and weird like all this stuff and then i had my birthday with the nets and that's when sports illustrated did their story Mm -hmm. and then by the end of the year i was with yahoo and that's when it became a whole nother animal
2: all from a train ride getting broken up with from eugene oregon so when you were starting this blog were you trying to just write down your thoughts are you actually hoping that people would read this stuff
1: no i actually i really just thought like oh this will be funny for like my friends like I really wanted to tell the story of what had just happened to me. Yeah. That was like the first thing I ever wrote. I thought it'd be an easy way to distribute it just like to friends and family or whatever. And even the reason I called it too much Rod Benson, because I like, I know my personality is like kind of big. So I was like, my friends, when they find out like I'm writing about my life, they're going to be like, what are you, this is too much, man. This is, (laughs) what are you doing? (laughs) Like, yeah, it's more Rod Benson than you want. So you're just going to call it too much. And so you've kind of blow up on the scene with this, like,
2: writing, I get called blogging, I guess, this point, before Twitter was around, right? So you kind of gave it like a nice viewpoint of what it was like as an athlete, as an insider. And that was kind of what a lot of people were interested in. And did you find yourself in hot water at all from becoming a blogger from the athlete perspective?
1: Not really. But I do think that, like, a lesson I learned slash, like, maybe still haven't fully learned is that other people don't necessarily like their stories being told like that. So like even that story I just told you, like it kind of frames my ex as like a villain, even though we were all just like 19 to 21 year old people, like not understanding how like breakups work. Right. But in the context of how I tell the story, it's like, Hey, this person didn't really want that said. So in terms of like, I never said anything like drastic or like considering the kind of pushback from the, NBA brass at the time, you would think I was writing about like like murder or like something like that. Like my stories would be like, "Oh, have you ever heard of Buffalo Wild Wings?" I yeah. haven't. They're like, "Oh, it's too much. You, He's yeah. got too much power." Too much rod, people just fear what they don't know or don't understand, and it's just easier to. When I was with the Pacers in training camp, Larry Bird calls me in for a meeting. When you're the last guy on a team, you barely even get Facetime with the <laughs> second assistant coach, let alone. NBA hall of famer and like president of basketball operations. So I'm like, my thought is like, damn, they're really nice about like letting people go on this team. Like, Holy <laughs> shit. Like, <laughs> I'm going to go in and get sent home. And I go in there. And he's like, he like tells me the story of like the Malice in the palace. And he tells the story of like uh, Jamal Tinsley shooting himself. And then he's like, Yeah, so that's why we'd like you to stop writing while you're with this team, because we don't need any more issues or whatever. And I'm like, I like it willingly, of course, just said, okay. but like in revisiting it years later, it's like, did you really compare (laughs) these two things? Like I've been in Indianapolis for like four days. I've been like, man, steak and shake. That is good. (laughs) This is neat. (laughs) And he's like, well, this is like it's reminding me of. Someone shooting themselves in the leg, so you prefer just none of it. I mean, that was, I mean, how much there is there to write
2: about Indiana anyways? You know, steak, like the best steak and shake is usually like, that's about it. But that's the point.
1: I, I guess I would frame it that way, but it wasn't like, it was never like disrespectful, but yeah. at the end of the day, like that's how it was viewed. It was just viewed as dangerous. It's funny how much it has changed now with
2: like Twitter and of course, all the social media, like now it's such a big part of the marketing campaign is to having these athletes give their perspective and promoting the brand or league. So you were just ahead of your time. I walked so others could run. Beautifully said. What you should have done instead of writing is started Twitter, you know, we're like, hey, I want all my other friends also
1: write with me. Well, what, what, you want what? to know something very interesting about that first story I told you is that a few years later, I got an email from the guy that was in the van with me who was looking at the gay.com. And he was like a very higher up person at Twitter, like got in like right away. So that billboard inspired a, a lot. A lot. gay.com. Still don't know what it's about. Okay. So
2: you're writing that allows you to give people an insight of kind of your life and the best Buffalo Wild Wings places in Indiana or New Jersey. And then how does Korea come into play? So I'm kind of curious of like how you ended up joining and playing in the Korean basketball league. Like, is there like a LinkedIn page that, you know, have all the basketball
1: leagues around the world. When you're in the D league, you kind of like, especially cause guys come and go a lot. You kind <clears> of get a sense of like, which countries pay the best. And like, obviously people knew about China. I mean, I didn't know much about Korean basketball league at all, but My coach, my last year in the D-League, his name is Jay Humphreys. He actually used to coach. He used to be a head coach in Korea. He might even be like the last American head coach to coach in Korea. And he was like, you know, hey, if the NBA doesn't work out, I have some connections in Korea. The money is great there, blah, 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 blah. And my agent actually like confirmed this. So we played that last season kind of with the goal in mind of like ending up in Asia Like, even the reason I played with the Pacers in in preseason, it was a choice because they were playing preseason games in Beijing and in Taiwan. And it was actually pretty wild with that because I, I was supposed to play with the Suns. And so I was in Phoenix and I was walking to, like, from the hotel to the facility for, like, day one of training camp. And my agent called me and said, like, stop, don't go. And I was like, what? And he's like, turn around. I'm like, I'm, like, literally going to start training camp. I like, yeah, don't do it. No, no, no. Get back. I have a flight for you soon. You're going to Indianapolis. <laughs> so I just flew from Phoenix to Indianapolis to do that. But it was because we knew we wanted to end up in Asia. So mm-hmm. with that exposure and then with my coach, and then I had a pretty good season, the targeting of Korea ended up working out nicely. And did you go play for the
2: team that he was associated with? Or how did the team selection process work out? So
1: there's a few different people who I've talked to over the years who like, Really try to take credit for me ending up on this team. It's like a reporter who likes, like, oh, I saw you and I knew that you'd be a great foot on this team. My coach was like, oh, no, I got inroads on this team. My agent's like, oh, I've been dealing with this team for years. Like, I don't know whose origin story is the truth, but I was destined to end up on uh, Wangju Dongbu due to like eight different people trying to get me there. And where is Wangju in relation to Seoul? Wangju is like an hour, hour and a half east. It's actually pretty close to like Pyongyang where they had the Olympics. Olympics, yeah. It's like much colder in Wunju and much more desolate, although it's gotten a lot better in Mm -hmm. the last four or five years. When I first Mm -hmm. got there, it was like there wasn't even a McDonald's. (laughs) There was nothing.
2: So you decided you want to go play in South Korea. Walk me through that first, those first couple of days of landing. I'm assuming it's Incheon in Seoul and the experience you had of adapting to your whole new lifestyle
1: yeah i mean it was i played in france before and i remember just like hating most of it especially from the basketball side and a big part of that is because they like you're really like on your own there in a place where you really severely need help to like figure out what's happening especially Mm -hmm. if you're not in paris which i wasn't so when i got to korea it was like the exact opposite like they really like took care of every little thing to make sure like you're comfortable. And like one thing, like, the contract said, like, oh, they take care of your food, but who knows what that meant, right? That can mean a lot of different things. They give you like $100 a week for like groceries or something. Like you never know these things. They immediately like take me to like a steakhouse. I'm like, yeah, order whatever you want. And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah. Like, and that's kind of what it was the whole time I was there, right? So it immediately felt like way more comfortable in many more ways in, the, in those first few days than I had ever experienced, like with everyone being like, you're our guy. We're like, we're rocking with you. We'll give you whatever you need to be successful. Not really knowing at that time that like they do that for every player and they cut a lot of players because if they give you everything and you don't produce for them, then they're like, you're just not the guy. (laughs) We'll just change you out. So, but until that point, there's no better living. So when you got there, did you feel like you stood
2: out? I don't know how, how many foreigners are in Wongju, but did you get like a lot of looks? Like I felt when I first got to Korea, I remember everything was so small. Like I felt fat, like sitting in a bus chair.
1: How did you feel in Wongju? Of course, I got stared at a lot, but it's different. Like having I've had friends visit. I had my girlfriend visit mm-hmm. many times. Many times she's been out there. They get looked at differently. Like... Me, they just automatically assume that I'm, even if they've never heard of me, that I'm in the KBL. And so, like, most people who see me just want a picture right away. And that kind of stuff I was used to. I don't think I was used to, like, how many people want a picture, like, how inappropriate the timings would be with asking for pictures sometimes. But especially after my first year, though, it really settled into, like, one much smaller than Seoul, right? So pretty much everywhere I went, the people in those spaces knew me like on a more personal level. And so it, it really made it feel like more of like a home than like a am just like getting stared at all the time or something. It, it, it got really nice after the first year.
2: And how was it transitioning into playing with your new teammates while you were in Korea? Can you also touch upon the fact,
1: I believe that in Korea, they have only two foreigners that can play on a team? Yes, yeah, it's, it's two, but they changed that rule quite a bit. My second year was one. A couple of years has been like, you couldn't play at the same time. Then you can play together the whole time, or you can only play together like one quarter or something. Like there's a lot of different variations of that. But playing with the teammates, like my style, really worked well because I've always been more of a cerebral player. And so Korea's like, if anything, they overthink the game in like many ways. But it, it made it easy for me because there wasn't anything too complicated for me to like understand immediately and implement in a way that made the team better. I think some guys struggle with Korea because they're so like naturally gifted, but they don't know how to play that rigid, like rules-based style. And I can do that a little bit better. So, I mean, we got along right away. The only thing was that I couldn't understand. So I asked my translator, like, hey, just like, give me some words. Like, how do they say like this, 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 and this? Like, wanna know how to say like pick and roll or like screen or like zone? And he was like, it's English. Zona. I like, I'm like, yeah, no, it's not English. She's like, no, listen, it's not Zona. It's like, cause they don't have a Z, right? It's like, Oh yeah. Chona, Oh yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh shit. Like this is English. It's just like the best approximation they can use with the Hangul, Right. So oh, yeah. once I got that down, then it was, it was pretty easy. So how are your teammates
2: responding to you? Did you click with them right away or was it just like, Hey, we're here to do business. We're here to play ball. And that's
1: it. Korean teammates. For the most part, there's been some exceptions, but they love the American player, like, pretty much no matter what, for a couple reasons. One, they're just different, and, like, I think especially as, like, black foreigners, we're considered to be, like, cool in certain ways that, like, Koreans, like, like, you know, Koreans are kind of just fans of shit anyway, so, Mm. like. They're just like, oh, you like have like a uh, like hip hop style or like whatever. They, you know like <laughs> They love that shit from all of their foreign players. <laughs> Secondly, when an American shows up, it's usually after they've been doing like months of like mountain running and intense like conditioning with the team. So like when we show up at signals, like now we're doing like regular basketball stuff. Mm-hmm. So they're just happy in general that you're there. Like, oh, thank God. Like, yes, now we can relax and like live normally. I think they also, yeah, they just need to get along with the American players in order for like the team to work smoothly. So I've never been on a Korean team where the teammates weren't cool as hell. Like the best teammates I've ever had have all been every teammate I've ever had in Korea.
2: So, speaking of these teammates, you guys, I know like drinking is a big part of the culture in Korea, which has shocked me the first day. I remember the first day I was walking in Korea, I saw a guy face down in the doorway and I thought he was dead. And I was like, (laughs) in Korea, like he's not sleeping because his nose was in the ground. And I'm like, I have no idea what to do. And I look and there's two guys laughing behind him. I'm like, okay, so he's clearly passed out. Was this drinking culture also permeating in
1: the team and team bonding? Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm not. I'm not shy Uh, of a little bottle time myself. So it was like kind of like it probably made my bad habits worse living there, to be honest. But it was interesting because especially my second year was really where I learned a lot more about this because I was the only American on the team. So instead of like maybe drinking with my teammate, I would like reach out to my translator or like to like some Korean teammates sometimes. There would always be reasons they couldn't. And it was usually because someone older than them told them they had to drink with them. Oh yeah. And it's like, if the head coach wants to drink, basically everybody's like available. If the (laughs) assistant coach wants to drink everyone below him and so on and so forth. So like a lot of times it'd just be like, you know, the team captain would like want to drink with like the second oldest player and then maybe like the translator and I'd be SOL, but it's all like, and then no one could tell anybody else, but everyone knew that they were all drinking. It's like because you can't like the Confucian culture, they can't like they have to all pretend like they're like being like straight and narrow, even though like literally nobody is and ever has been. That's
2: kind of dissimilar to the corporate culture they have there. This hweshiks of going out for these corporate drinking sessions with your boss doing Korean barbecue. If the boss says we're going out, <laughs> we're going out tonight. And I think it's intriguing to me of how the different rules they have for drinking. For example, like I remember hearing that like the oldest person who drinks, everyone else has to turn around and like they can't look at him when they drink. And there's all these rules. And sometimes you're wondering, are they just making this up just to make me feel like an idiot or <laughs> like what's actually real? And I also remember someone telling me, I was intrigued by it, that like the next day when they go to work, they don't talk about what happens. So it's like they'll be like tired, hungover and be like. Hey man, like, why are you tired? Be like, oh, I don't know. Like, I was gaming, and when everyone's out that night, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly the same thing. Honestly, like, I think that when basketball, they're less stringent on like some of the maybe like the rules, but because they like they kind of like think of us as like too dumb to like get it. They're yeah. also super impressed when you do, like, even just like shaking a hand with like the oh, like. Well, yeah, and yeah, that stuff. Like they're like, "Oh wow, wow! You you love Korea, don't you? Love it." Let's
2: bring it back to what we discussed earlier about this Mamba mentality of you kind of taking the switch on. Did this ever come out during your practicing or games
1: and become a problem? Many times, many times. <laughs> At the end of the day, Koreans love it, but again, it, it's like you know the the thing with the drinking about like going out all night, but then also not talking about it. That's not just with drinking. That's like with so many things in Korean culture that it's like these things are understood and we like them, but for a parent's sake, we cannot have this get out. You know, My maybe my like second week in my first season in Korea, we played a scrimmage game that we, against a college team that we nearly lost. We ended up winning because, you know at the time I didn't understand that maybe like the team had like gone out drinking. Like, there's a lot of like, factors that were over my head which is probably why i didn't get in too much trouble for this but to make sure that we won i mean i went od i probably scored like 45 50 points and i was getting mad at my teammates i'm like what, what are we doing like why is everyone like playing like shit today you know what i mean and after because again it's like this, i hate this like weird cycle but clearly the coach knew that they had all been drunk over the weekend or something or whatever so um after the game he made us do like suicides like lines and i was like what like well, we just played a game like what are we even doing And I put like a lot of effort into the game. So I was exhausted. So I'm like building up steam, like, all right, like just keep it together, keep it together. And then he had us do this like conditioning drill that's like a full court three man weave, but you do it like a bunch of times. You do it like 10 total times. So it's like exhausting. Once I saw that we did like the first group went and I was going to be like in the third group, I was like just like steaming. I was getting more and more mad. And the second we went, I'm like, oh, Lord, I'm getting more and more mad. And it was my turn to do it. And I was took it, and I didn't pass the ball to the two guys on the wings. I just dribbled and dunked 10 times, which is way more tiring. And then I took the ball, and I just punted it. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And my, 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 uh, my translator, like, runs up. He's like, no, what did you? why did you do this? Why did you do this? And he, like, ushers me out of the. And the coach like, ah, get out. Get out. Get out. Get out. And I was like, fine, I'll get out. Like, I'm not going to play. Like, whatever this is, I'm not here for that. And the translator takes me out, like, onto the bus. And he's like, oh, you can't do this. You can't do this. (laughs) And, like, he's like, I don't know what's going to happen you. might get, like, you might get sent home. You know, turns out the coach, like, sat me down. And he's like, you played excellent. You're a great player. I had to do this motion. I love it. But don't ever do that again to me. (laughs) Save it for the game. Like, okay, cool. We're good then. We're good.
2: Did they ever use that to kind of market you as like a super aggressive or any, like, you know, this crazy foreigner at
1: all? Yes. That was my whole, (laughs) like almost every picture of me is like one of me like yelling after a dunk or like even the ones like when we do like preseason pictures like where it's like staged photos. They'd be like, all right, now, like now, just like yell really hard. Like, ah, and and they'd be like, no, no, like more, like more. I'm like, ah, no, more, like, ah, like, like more, like Kevin Garnett, uh, like more. So I want to talk about a a story,
2: and you told me this a couple of years ago, and I don't remember if like the full story of it is just kind of coming in my head, but you were talking about the process that they go for drafting players in Las Vegas. Yeah, they have
1: like a draft, and they have a. What makes it really wild is like that they like it's really just a way for like, again, stuff you like kind of learn later. Just a way for all these like coaches to like have an excuse to be in Vegas for a week, get super drunk and like do whatever. But I think it's easy to underestimate how many American basketball players there are and how many like really want like to play for like money that can actually like sustain their life. Not just like I mean, anyone can go to like Finland and make like two thousand dollars a month and say they're a professional basketball player. but at the end of the day, that's not enough to really live. Places like Korea are super desirable. They probably get like thousands and thousands of applications to show up at this camp. And then they invite like 150. And especially my first few years, Korea has only wanted big men. Mm-hmm. So we're playing these five on five games of like all centers. And then like they'll bring in one Korean point guard to like lead each team. So like one one point guard, four centers, three of them playing like the wing. It's just like a million block shots and turnovers. And then they're like, "Oh, this guy's better. We, he's this is the guy we want?" They already knew who they wanted before the draft started. They just they just wanted an excuse to like be silly and be in Vegas and make it seem professional, which is probably why they stopped it. Because they can still do the scouting without doing that. So I think they just, like, substituted that with, like, oh, we'll just do, like, a week-long scouting trip during yeah. the summer league, and that we don't need to do the draft also. Probably, they're just probably like, I need to get away from my wife. My kid's bothering me. My
2: dog's not looking at me. I need to go to Vegas. You know,
1: honey, yeah. I'm going to go watch and recruit some big players. Korean dudes take every opportunity to be away from their family they yeah. possibly can. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, part of the, It's, like, embedded in the culture or something. Like, they do not like being around the house. So what were some of those highlights
2: of uh, your favorite times of Playing in Korea, those those first couple of years.
1: Yeah, my whole second year was amazing. We like set the league record for wins. We won big most of the games. Like that highlight thing that you play Mm -hmm. before—that was from that season. And it's wild. It's like it's like a three and a half minute highlight video. That's only from like four total games because that's how many. Like the whole season was just wild. Like those were just the four ones I got DVDs of. I was like, I'm not going to go through like 54 games of this. Yeah, just like shoot me a couple. But it was really cool. It was in a way lonely, but it was actually really cool being the only American. Cause that's when I really started to like understand the city that I lived in to like connect with the, my teammates a bit more and not like just live my own life and really set up out there in a different way. My girlfriend gets mad at me. Cause I always referred to like 2012 as like like one of my best years, but that like 2012 was like the end of that season. Mm-hmm. I also made like double that year. So I came back to LA with just like all this money, like just from the championship in Korea. And I was just like spending it. Like I did not care. Because <laughs> I was just like, that's was like a peak of my like, I consider like men to have like three stages child, young man, and then like wise man. Uh-huh. My that was like peak young man, Rod Benson, like <laughs> no regard
2: for any. How was the parallel of you know, you're in Korea, you're in Wangju, and everyone thinks you're you know, an all star, you just became Korean, the KBL MVP, you just became champion, all of a sudden you come to LA, and everyone's like, You're playing where? Like, was there. Any kind of, like, thing in your
1: mentality when you would be switching cities? A lot of people don't understand overseas basketball. And, again, because it's so easy for people to say they play overseas, it's kind of, like, overuse. Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, you play overseas basketball, but that person's, like, kind of broke and kind of, like, or you've seen them playing, they're not that good or whatever. For me, like, I never even like talking about basketball mm-hmm. like with people like that, so... A lot of people didn't really know what I did. They just knew I was like tall. And like, I think my clothing line kind of preceded me more. 2012 is when I, again, is like also when like, probably I put the most money into the line that really helped it blow up. Cause that it, the line got pretty big by 2013. I don't think basketball really came up that much. Mm-hmm. You should be like, oh, this is the, he's the boom though guy. He's tall and he like parties a lot. Great. Yeah. This is our, this is good enough <laughs> for me. Don't need to know more. Welcome to LA. Not in the NBA. That's all I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he plays in a Wong I don't know. Welcome to LA. It's funny being in LA though, because again, it's a, it's a celebrity city. So people who don't know me, like a lot of times just assume I'm in the NBA It's come up a couple of times. Like I was at the, uh, you know, the Beverly um, Beverly Hills Rodeo Drive. We went there to film something. This is a couple of years back. This is like 2014. We're waiting at the parking structure for our our last friend to arrive before we start filming. And from a distance, we just see this guy running like down the street. This is like Santa Monica Boulevard in Beverly Hills. Like it looks super awkward. No one even jogs in this area. This guy's sprinting full speed, 200 yards away, running like in the same direction of the street as us, like 100 yards away. Fifty twenty five. 25. He runs right up to me, like right up to me. And he's like, fuck. <laughs> and I'm like, excuse me. He's like, I got a tip DeAndre Jordan was in the area. Well, if you see him, here's my card. I work for TMZ. They thought you were him? I guess. He got a tip that, that I was DeAndre Jordan. He just gave me his card and walked away. You're like, I'm Rod Benson.
2: You can take a photo.
1: I'm unimportant. <laughs>
2: yeah. So I, I know that you end up getting traded at one point. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, it was just, it was just interesting because I'd never been traded
1: like <laughs> that, or at least not like out of the blue. And it also sucked because I got traded to like a very good team, but very strict team. Like where that same understanding I said with my first coach where he's like, I like this, just don't Mm -hmm. do it here. It was like way more stringent than that. Mm -hmm. There was no understanding. There was no relationship and we won, which is like the worst part. It like reinforced his like bad coaching style. Mm -hmm. We had the most talent. That's why we won. We didn't win because he just was better. Him doing all these things made it It really, that was when I really stopped enjoying playing basketball. Like, I don't think I still even enjoy it the same today as I did, like, right before that trade, Mm -hmm. as I did right after Mm -hmm. and since. At the end of the day, like, what are my real complaints? Like, oh, my coach wasn't as nice to me. Like, I don't know, who cares? At the end of the day, we won twice. I still went to Coachella. It was fine.
2: Yeah, just before we end talking about basketball, I noticed like a lot of the NBA players or ex NBA players are moving towards China. Is there just a lot of money over there? Or what's the incentive for moving to play there?
1: It's literally and only money. Mm-hmm. And China specifically wants in former NBA players because they the NBA market's hard in China. So mm-hmm. it's a great symbiotic relationship. You get four four month season, potentially make like five to ten million dollars. Like yeah. Come on, who's gonna turn that down? Right. Yeah. Are
2: there any other markets that are hot for playing abroad other than China? You also mentioned Korea. Any other ones that are like in demand by players?
1: All the Asian ones are in very high demand. A mecha okafor like reached out to me a few months ago to ask about how playing in Korea was. And it was such an interesting thing. Like, I, I mean, I know him and his wife. It's like, yeah, that level of player is like not thinking about Italy. Right. They're thinking about these Asian countries because the money is big and the season is short, but if you want, and, and also cause you go there, if you don't necessarily want to like have a career there, people don't want to like be in China for years and years. Some people end up doing it, but the idea is like you go there, you make a lot of money you come back. People want to play in, like, these big-time Euroleague teams. They take, like, time to work into also. very rare you see someone just come straight from wherever and go into, like, a top-top team like Barcelona or something. Barcelona may not even want them. Like, China will take worse players just because they have the NBA tag on them. A lot of Euroleague teams, like, man, you start off, like, coming in with, like, a German team, work your way up to, like, a French team and maybe an Italian team. Now you're in the ACB. Now you're on Barcelona. You've been out there, like, seven, eight years. Yeah. And that takes time to build. So it's not a hot market, but it's still huge money to play on one of those teams. It's just not quick. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay, cool. So
2: you kind of wrapped up your, your experience in Korea and kind of what was the process of deciding that, you
1: know, okay, I'm done with this chapter of my life of playing basketball. Well, once I like lost the love for the game, uh, I ended up getting fired by that team because we, I mean, we both got tired of each other. That next season, I knew that, the you know korean league allows you to play with one team for up to three seasons before you have to like re-enter the market or whatever so i was fortunate enough to sign back with my first team and i knew i had three years if they kept wanting me back and vice versa before i'd have to switch again so i decided these would be my last three years so i could have like a bit of an exit strategy all right and so you kind of finished
2: things off and then ended your career over there uh emotional bittersweet what were the feelings leaving korea
1: I didn't really feel any emotion maybe until, like, the very – because we went to the championship that year also. And we ended up losing in game six on the road. But because it was an elimination game, it was the first time I really could sit with, like, this could be my last, like, professional game. And, you know, Korea does a lot of theatrics before games. They try their best to, like, mimic the NBA, but also, like, maybe overdo it in certain ways. And especially the team we were playing, I don't know if you – ever been to an SK Knights game, but they they go above and beyond. It's just before the game and they're like announcing the players and like it's dark. And I have this like 80 foot projection screen of their guys' highlights. There's like drones flying around like 30 drones. And there's like all these fans with little like light up things and there's cheerleaders and placards that are like flashing. There's a lot happening. And in that moment I was like, I don't ever I don't think I've ever like taken time to realize how incredible all of this is like right now. And I like teared up for like 10 seconds. And then I let it go and that was it. <laughs>
2: I love how we keep reoccurring theme of Rod Benson crying at different stages of his life. We should re, we should rechange the title of this. (laughs) I've only cried like eight times ever. And you've heard about like four. So (laughs) an emotional journey of Rod Benson. (laughs) Okay. So you're repatriating back to the United States. You, You know, basketball was such a significant part of your life at that point. Uh, you had this incredible experience of playing abroad and getting to play professionally, and you've made some significant money. Walk us through the next steps. What was going through your head, and where did that lead to?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I knew I, I wanted to retire when I did. <laughs> But I didn't really have, I had a game plan of doing sports broadcasting and uh, writing again, but I wanted to like kind of slow play that because a, I was just kind of burnt out on like sports in general uh, mm-hmm. and be like, why well, not give myself room to like discover other things. I mean, the very first thing that happened was like my third day back, maybe I was, you know, drinking with one of my friends, you know, it was late. And he was like, have you ever considered improv? And I was like, no, isn't that like a cult or dumb or something? And he was like, no, I actually think you'd be really good at it. And, you know, the biggest school in like the world is like right here. So I was like, okay, great. I'll sign up. It was like 3 a.m. I was in class like the next day. And now I like perform improv like. All the time. And I'm on a a couple teams that are really good and funny. And the second thing that happened was I, you know, hadn't been painting, but I painted a a Whitney Houston portrait for my mom for Mother's Day. It got so much love that I just kind of kept going and ended up having my first art show in September of that year. Now I'm a professional artist as like my main source of income. And I paint all the time. And it's just like, there's not like an advice section of these things, but if you ever just think about wanting to do something, just do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, like it usually if it's something you enjoy, you'll probably make it work out in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you anymore. And then I was just
2: on another podcast uh, talking about this. People were asking for advice or whatever. And I just said the same thing. If you like, just do it. I, I also got into improv about a year ago. Um, and it's, for, it's an expat improv group. And I was just a couple months before that looking at the improv show. And I was like, I want to be on the other side of the stage. And I just want to see what it's like. Uh, and reached out and just tried to threw me in the fire. And I just enjoyed it. And same with this podcast. I had, I was like, I met some incredible people throughout my seven years. So great stories. Just do it, see where it goes. And I think you are one person that, you know, lives that, that, you know, you want to do it. You just want to make a music video do it. You want to make a clothing line? Just do it. And now you're a painter, which I that is which is mind-blowing. I'm sure you probably never thought that you'd be doing that when you were younger. Props to you for for doing that. What does your typical day look like when it
1: comes to painting? Where do you get your inspiration from? Do you have a certain ske- set work schedule? It's a little weird right now because of the virus, mm-hmm. but my stuff is either, you know, event-based or commission-based. So, I was supposed to have had a show 2 weeks ago and one like literally two days from now, art shows that uh, both were canceled. So when that's happening, I'm pretty much nonstop. Like my last show was, I guess was in Korea, actually. I was in Korea last September and I did a show. I only had like a week to really get it together. So it's just like burning, like nonstop painting. Mm -hmm. I I was able to get like eight or 10 paintings done for that show. I'm the type of person who like, when I am painting, I can't really take breaks. Like I don't really know how. Probably to my detriment sometimes. I'll wake up at like five like giddy and like I won't go to bed till like two Mm -hmm. and like if it's not done I'll be like mad wake up the next day at five and like finish it or whatever like anything I'm learning to like practice a little patience but right now there's nothing to really plan for so it's Mm -hmm. just waiting for commissions I just finished a Barack Obama commission the other day I had a Kobe Bryant commission that I can't show pictures of yet because the client hasn't received it yet so waiting for that so I can show it off and then yeah I got some more stuff coming down the pipeline so
2: Uh, Where do you get inspiration for your pieces? Is it coming just from
1: clients? Well, I've always enjoyed pop art. I mean, like ever since I first saw like Banksy, I also really enjoyed like stencil art and like kind of like the sharpness of it. I went to a show, an art show like 10 years ago called uh, Art in the Streets. And it was like the first uh, street art show in L.A., if not North America, I think, because I was still like a newer like form at that time. Now it's like we all expect to see like art when we drive around and stuff. But Back then, it was so newer, so I really latched onto that style as one I enjoyed. As it comes to like the subjects, I'm a very like '90s focused person. Like, I really enjoy like especially Black culture in the '90s. I feel like it was like it was represented in like so many different and cool ways. So those figures are like they've remained iconic. I think specifically because I think some of the biggest Black icons ever are ones that you're going to find who had popularity in the late early's late '80s to like through the '90s even bigger than some people today and the people before them. So I feel like painting people who feel timeless makes the painting feel important Mm -hmm. and try to avoid just like, just like whoever's hot at the moment. Even the Obama piece, that was a commission. I hadn't painted Obama before then. It's not like I have something against it. It just felt like a little on the nose for me or Mm -hmm. not like retro enough, but Once I did it, I really did enjoy it um, afterwards.
2: So if someone's interested in looking at some of your art, where could people find some of your latest
1: artworks? Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, rodbensonart.com has most of it. I post everything that I do on Instagram as well. It may not be as well curated as my site, but my Instagram is uh, my middle name, Gerion, but it's (laughs) Z-S-O-R-R-Y-O-N.
2: Okay. We usually end our show by doing the Travel Tribe toss-up. It's three okay. questions. Whatever pops in your head, let us know and uh, we'll go from there. All right? All right. All right. It's game day in Wangju. The lights are out. The drones are out. People are yelling your name. Rob Benson. <laughs> what shoes
1: are you wearing? Oh, man. Uh, I exclusively wore, for the last five years of my career, Kobe 11. Yeah specifically the high top ones mm-hmm. that like lace up super high like boxing shoes mm-hmm. love those shoes most comfortable show i ever played in all right kobe levin second question and uh, we've been asking everyone so
2: far and we've gotten some fantastic responses what was the most underrated destination that you have been to
1: I mean, it's hard to say it's underrated, but I think that Tokyo is a place that isn't first, second, or third on like most Westerners like travel destination. And I can't for the life of me think of why other than like, if you're born in the United States, you're like indoctrinated with like European history. Go to Tokyo first. You'll see so much more and you'll enjoy every part of it. Like there's nothing about Tokyo that I think that is unenjoyable. I agree with you. I think if you
2: are going to start off Asia, that's a great place to start off. And your mind will be blown also by, you know, the technology they have. there. I was always blown away by their toilet system. I mean, incredible. <laughs> Compared to <laughs> what we have in the like <laughs> night and day. Okay, last question we have. What was one moment that where your heart either sank or sung? Sank
1: or sung, like at any point in history?
2: Well, the thing was, we asked this question... Two shows ago like when I was trying to get when your heart was sing, like when you were like because this guy was traveling throughout the world and I was wondering what was his best moment and then he's like oh yeah well I could tell you when my heart didn't sing uh it was when I got blacklisted from the U- UAE and I was like all right well <laughs> I didn't see that whole cool, <laughs> cool story but anytime your heart was just like this is a really beautiful moment or one time anytime that your heart was like oh shit what is going on? <laughs>
1: It's funny because I think most people, it's easier to draw the oh shit ones. This is how humans are wired. Yeah. I'll um, <laughs> <laughs> I i I'll, I'll go with an oh shit one because I think oh shit ones are funnier. me 10 years ago, I was with my buddy who's kind of a wild card. And we were at this diner in Hollywood called uh, Mel's. Suge Knight. Comes in like the famous president of Death Row Records, who's known for being like a notorious murderer badass, and he sits like across the restaurant, and I'm like, oh man, that's Suge Knight, that's crazy. And my friend's like, oh, I'm gonna try and fight him, and I was like, <laughs> what? What do you mean? It's like three. It's like three a.m. He's like, he's like, yeah, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna confront Suge Knight. I'm like, Suge Knight's with like eight people. I'm like, please do not, please actually do not. He's like, too late. I'm doing it. He just pops up. This is a white guy. Oh no. Just pops up. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, this is the heart singing. Like, I literally just, like, fell down in my seat and tried to, like, not be seen. And this dude walked right up to Suge Knight and went like, fuck you, Suge Knight. You ain't shit. (laughs) And I was just like, no. Like, please, no. And to Suge Knight's credit, because I'm sure this happens a lot, maybe, he just ignored him. Just fully ignored him. (laughs) And thank the Lord that he ignored him, because that probably would have been my last day. That is insane. How old were you during this story? I was, like, 24.
2: Sheesh. That, that is just like asking for a death sentence. I don't know what's going on with you and your friends, is popping random people in the face, but that's not the person you want to go that's not with. That wasn't mama mentality. That was just life. <laughs> <He's> like <laughs> 3 a.m., drunk at a burrito stand. And he's like,
1: I'm mama. I'm a bunch of.
2: No.
1: That's the one misunderstanding mama mentality. You don't get it. You're like, no, you don't understand it.
2: <laughs> Speaking of the nightlife, Carlos asking, Ask Roddy B how
1: Itaewon compares to other night
2: life he has experienced.
1: Itaewon has changed dramatically. When I first got there, it was wild. It reminded me a lot of like going out in like Tijuana or something, mm-hmm. like where it it was like quite dirty, but also there was like a lot of like little like fun little spots. So you didn't feel like you shouldn't be there, but it felt like like an experience. That's like very unique. But now it's like Itaewon is just like the rest of Korea. There's like regular clubs and like the bars are all super nice. And like, it's just like going out anywhere. There's actually that back alley that was actually pretty nice. They have,
2: I think, Prost. I'm not sure if it's still there. I haven't been in Korea for a couple of years, but there was a couple of nice bars that were there that kind
1: of were yeah, pretty elegant. Prost was probably like the first one to really change that back alley. And now that back alley is like, that's where like the real action happens. Like everything cool is back there. Uh,
2: Thank you so much for taking the time uh, today to tell your story. It was fascinating. It was entertaining. I laughed a lot. My only recommendation is stop crying, man. You're a man now.
0: (laughs) Nah, man, crying is crying
1: is a sign of strength. Don't let this man tell
0: you different. That wraps up this week's episode of the Travel Tribe podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure to follow and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and leave us a little love. Until next time, stay adventurous.